I'm Sarah Resnick. And I'm LaShawn Moore. And we are the hosts of the Weave Podcast, a project of the weaving yarn shop, Just Yarn and Fiber. Hello. Hi, everyone. I hope all is well. On this week's episode, I'm speaking with Lauren B. Fay, the founder and executive director of the New Fashion Initiative. The New Fashion Initiative is a foundation-creating interdisciplinary education and communications initiatives in order to promote circulatory collaboration and accountability within the fashion industry. Lauren Fay is a connector and producer committed to creating a paradigm shift within the fashion industry. As a sustainability consultant, she's developed initiatives and strategic planning in order to improve the transparency of her clients' supply chains. Hey, Lauren. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Can you start out by introducing yourself and giving us a bit of your background and also talking about the New Fashion Initiative? Yes. Um, So my name is Lauren Fay. I am the founder of a nonprofit called the New Fashion Initiative. I am a native Manhattanite, um, but I've also lived in in California and Montana, and now live in Seattle. And I've been in and out of the fashion industry for most of my career. So I worked initially in publishing. Um, I've had a couple of different startups. I've done some styling. Um, I have a lot of friends who were photographers and models and designers and buyers and really just all the different roles in fashion. But I've had a very strong push-pull uh, love-hate dynamic with the with the industry. So a number of years ago, still wanting to be involved, I left IT, which is where I had landed, and went back into fashion, starting with classes at FIT. Um, they have a sustainable design similar to a master's program. Started taking cl- courses with them and learning more and more about the negative impacts of fashion. So the social and environmental damage essentially that this huge industry uh, has and how opaque it is, how purposefully opaque it is uh, in terms of people not knowing their, the people who make their clothes and, um, you know, and what is being done in these developed and developing um, economies that, that is really set up in, in an extraction and exploitation model uh, that is really, you know, we talk about sustainable fashion. So we're, we are, uh, our mission is to just raise awareness about the impact of fashion and then looking in how to make fashion more sustainable is a, is a big question and has a lot of layers and, um, is, is truly a challenge and something that I'm very interested in being involved in solving. And so your background kind of informed what inspired you to start the new fashion initiative? So my background, yeah, I, I had always loved fashion. Um, as I said, I, I thought designers were, you know, rock stars. I grew up with um, my, my age. So I'm, I'm 41. So like Mark Jacobs, Anna Sui, um, uh, Aliyah, some of these, you know, designers are just, were incredible to me and are incredible. They're incredibly creative people. But I started, I have a lot of friends, essentially when I re-entered fashion and knew that I wanted to be back in the industry, 
I wanted to be part of solving for some of these problems. I didn't want to just start working with a brand um, that was sort of business as usual because there's so much that's broken in the system. Um, and that's really from C-suite, from, you know, executive suite down to um, how the majority of garment workers aren't paid a living wage. So I started, again, those classes at FIT, and I actually started initially volunteering with Fashion Revolution, which is a large movement. It's a essentially a social media platform that tasks people with asking the question, who made my clothes, which is a very straightforward, simple question that, that often even brands don't know the answer to because they, they go through so many different middlemen to actually get to the factories that, that make their product. And so they don't know whether they are, um, for example, you've probably seen a lot of the, the work camps, the exposés that have been coming out recently in the press about these work camps in China, uh, Muslims that are, you know, forced labor that's happening, you know, still to this day. And there's forced labor that's happening in LA, um, in the U S. So it's not just a problem in, in China. There's, there's folks who are, um, you know, especially now with ice super active, um, there's a lot of people who come to the U S to, to work, um, in the garment production industry in, in LA and get exploited and certainly, certainly underpaid. Um, so garment worker center, I'll just shout them out. They're a wonderful nonprofit looking at that. So it's a combination of me being somebody who is uh, just wanting to be aware in the world of my personal ability to, uh, to use some of my, you know, my, my education um, and my background uh, just overall of, of knowing a lot of people in the fashion industry and, and trying to use that um, to push for change. Mm. It's really interesting to hear you talk about some of the issues that plague the fashion industry. And I love the way that you described it as being really opaque, because I feel like that is such a, a really great analogy for the way that things really are. I saw a quote and I, I wish I could remember where I saw it, but it said all clothes are handmade. And it's so true when you when you really think about where clothes come from and how they're made. And there's just no way that you can justify the prices of fast fashion goods against the labor that it requires. And it is so entrenched with the current political system and the injustices that immigrants are facing. It's, it's really a telltale sign. And so I'm really interested in learning about some of the steps that you think can be made or should be made at this phase while we're having the conversation? Like, what are some of the things that you see as being critical in, in changing the current state of the fashion industry? Yeah, I think, I think there's different components, right? So there's just um, citizens looking at themselves as not just consumers, but really citizens. So that means being uh, informing themselves and knowing this, I mean, I, you know, I'm 41. So I remember some of the exposés um, that happened around like Nike 
um, and knowing that they were underpaying folks for, um, you know, the shoes and some of the things that they were making, um, and frankly, probably still are. Um, and to your earlier point, when you look at a t-shirt that's $5, something's got to give, right? There's, there's just no way that that could be made wherever it's made and shipped here and, and somebody make a profit. And, you know, these huge conglomerates, these, or they're not conglomerates, they're actually family owned. Two of the huge fast fashion companies, Zara and H&M are owned by families, billionaires, and, you know, they're, so they're not, they don't have this excuse, frankly, of stake, um, shareholders needing to report back profits to them, which I think, you know, we could talk about that too. I think that's sort of BS. That's just a, um, that's an excuse that's covered, um, because you, you can't keep exploiting these, uh, these workers and they're, you know, they're everywhere in the world. A lot of them right now we're active in a campaign called the pay up campaign, which is trying to get post COVID so many of these um, uh, manufacturers canceled orders. And then because of the way that their contracts are set up, because they're the big players and they put in the big orders and ultimately, you know, they have the money, they canceled all these orders and then are leaving these manuf- these, these factories high and dry. So for countries like Bangladesh, where 80% of their GP or more is from this, this money. Um, it's a humanitarian crisis to have those, you know, bills not paid and those orders not coming in. And so I think, you know, the first step is for citizens to know the scope of the problem and really to look at their part in it. So that is, that's voting with your wallet. That's buying less. That's voting with your wallet. So, you know, I always think, you know, the more local, and smaller you can get with brands, the better, really, because you'll know, I mean, you'll, it's a lot, or the, some of these newer brands that are started with transparency from, from the beginning. But um, you have to really be discerning because there also is a lot of what, what is called greenwashing. Um, and this is, and this is people knowing that sustainability, circularity, these things are buzzwords that people know a little bit about. Um, so I think it's really just, you know, individuals have, uh, with the way that we go walk within the world, there's definitely responsibility. And secondhand, I, I personally love and shop secondhand. I've worked in thrift stores before multiple times in my life. I have always shop secondhand. Now sometimes it's consignment for some nicer pieces, but it's, you know, I think that there there's an inherent value in clothing that doesn't go away just because somebody is, is bored with the piece. You know, if, if the clothing has been well-treated, it's got a lot of life in it. So, but bigger than individuals, policy needs to change. So, um, one of the main things that's been happening actually during COVID, which is great, is California. Uh, and once again, I'll shout out the, the garment workers that in our center because they've been doing a lot of work here uh, for this, but they're trying to change a law that allows for um, Californian manufacturers to pay piecemeal. So they pay like per neckline, per seam almost. Like, you know, so you build the arm of a shirt, 20 cents, 30 cents, whatever, whatever it is, a dollar, uh, 10 to the, to the sewer. So it's not, it doesn't guarantee any kind of a minimum wage. 
And it basically means that a lot of these folks have to work, you know, have to work overtime in order to make any, anywhere near, um, not just a minimum, but a, but a living wage. So things like, you know, like that legislation needs to be gone. Um, I think brands should be accountable for their, um, for their footprint, for their impact, you know, for their output. There, there needs to be, um, whether that is that they do buybacks and they, they are, are need to be responsible for their stuff. Um, or whether that means that they, uh, I mean, there's a few different ways to solve for that problem, but they, they can't just be producing, especially these fast fashion brands at the volume that they're producing. I mean, you may have read about H and M being caught burning tens of thousands of tons of clothing. Um, because that's how they're, Yeah. I mean, how messed up is that business model that the clothing is actually the energy from the burning of the clothing is actually worth more on in money than the actual clothing itself. Um, that's a broken system. Yeah, absolutely. I don't even know where to start. I mean, thank you for sharing so much and going so in depth. The first thing that I wanted to ask you about was when you first started sort of explaining the issue with family owned fast. You mentioned something about like stakeholders. Shareholders was what I meant. So like, you know, you'll have a larger company like Nike, where they'll say the CEO will say, you know, um, and this is, I'm paraphrasing and I'm not exactly, don't quote me on, you know, Nike per se, although I will call Nike out as having bad, you know, labor practices, but they, they hide behind the fact that they are publicly traded and they need to report certain margins. Um, and that's why they can't fundament, fundamentally disrupt their supply chain, um, you know, because they need to deliver collections. Those need to be sold. They need to make this per quarter, all these quotas that they have. Um, you know, this big machine of a company is set up. But, you know, as you said earlier, the, we're, we're seeing firsthand, especially through COVID, how dangerous the system of capitalism and the pace of it, you know, is overall. You know, do we really value um, that over life? Should we? I don't, I mean, personally, I don't know if that's the world, you know, that, that, um, that I want to live in. I don't know. I mean, I don't, you know, group thought solutions like communism isn't the way that I would necessarily go, but there's gotta be, there's got, something's gotta give, there's gotta be a better way. I think that really speaks to the level of importance that the fashion industry plays in creating jobs and also how if we can change and transform the fashion industry, we can affect communities. Very much so. Yeah, I, I think um, and give them an opportunity to create their own stronger, robust economies. So they're not just, you know, the bulk of them are sewers, some of them are factory owners, you know, none of them are, 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 you know, just give them an opportunity for there to be more independent brands that are coming out of uh, these countries. Um, and there's just more opportunity for people for some mobile mobility or for different, for them to even branch out, you know, into different industries. So, you know, India, for example, is starting to get much, much more in China as well, much more active in, um, in, you know, solar power and wind power and those kinds of, you know, 
those kinds of uh, technologies and industries. And so, yeah, if you've got more po more of a population that is free to go to schools and um, study different things and become other, you know, uh, become other types of workers, then then you have a much more diverse, um, sturdier economy. And what are some of the ways that you're connecting to people to sort of facilitate or create the conversation around creating change? Yeah, so we are, well, we started last year. Um, one of the first things that we did was we had a, a pop-up about circularity um, in South Street Seaport. And so that was really a lot of that was about extending the life cycle. So the key part in, in a cycle of, of circularity, which is really trying to reuse everything that's been produced, um, is using things for longer. So buying secondhand furniture, um, you know, buying secondhand clothing, or when you are buying, um, new clothing or new home goods, trying to get it repurposed from other things. So whether that's recycled or upcycled, um, just looking at all the companies that are innovating in that. So we created a space that was like an apartment um, and had different rooms. It didn't have a kitchen, but it had, you know, living room, bedroom, uh, dining room. And the idea was to show how how much of the things that you have in your house um, can be thoughtfully chosen. So it's not, um, you know, and that can also save you money. So it's not, it's not just going to, um, Bed Bath and Beyond, I, you know, I'm name dropping them specifically, but like one of these big, 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 uh, catch all retailers to buy everything new. Um, you know, every time you move, it's really trying to, uh, actively live, um, start thinking about those things and supporting these brands that are doing, having these innovations. Um, and then we also had a workshop that we did, which was with academics. So that's a long-term project that we're working on, which is getting really connecting programs like, um, so we had Bard and Parsons and Brown and NYU um, academics from those schools together to initially for the beta project, just to talk about the work that they're doing and kind of connect some of those professors to each other so that they can start to share resources and have some visiting lectures so that future leaders and future, you know, the students who are studying design, they're aware of uh, some sustainable NBA, like the viability of uh, some of these business ideas they might have or um, environmental science, looking at, you know, design, design students being aware of their fabric choices. So knowing about microplastics, knowing about how these blends, which so much fabric is made from, you know, if you have uh, nylon or polyester, you know, just the impact of the, that fabric has um, both in being made typically from oil, a lot of the synthetics are made from oil. And then also, you know, when you wash said clothing, it releases microfibers into the water. So there's just... The idea was to cross-pollinate, um, you know, these different 
different thinkers and different stu different students so that they start thinking in the round about just how interconnected all these problems are. And NYU is there to talk about labor rights, which are a constant issue. And really, labor is something that's one of the things we've been focusing on during COVID is, is pay up and just saying, you know, these brands can't be, can't hide under these initiatives of say the recycled jacket that they're making, right? They make a jacket out of recycled um, bottles. You know, is that great? Uh, maybe, but also, you know, this is a brand that doesn't pay living wages, you know, to anybody in their Cambodian factories, right? So we can't mm. call them sustainable. They shouldn't be able to greenwash like that. They shouldn't be able to get away with that claim. Um, and, uh, and so trying to Na really do a bit of name and shaming, which we work with uh, Remake, which is a nonprofit, um, and Get Garment Worker Center is also part of this campaign, the Pay Up campaign, um, the Clean Clean uh, Clothes campaign is is an international group. They're based in Amsterdam, and they're also working essentially for labor rights. But there, there's just, I mean, there's this. Um, it's a really colonial construct, right? You've got these European and, and mostly European and American-owned brands. Um, there's certainly is fast fashion in Asia as well, but um, it's the idea is the money is concentrated with a few people at the top making a ton of money, and then everybody at the bottom um, barely getting by. And everybody at the bottom is typically typically brown, um, you know brown non-white women essentially is really what the the bulk of the uh the workforce is made up of and that needs to change yeah absolutely one of the things that that i really think about when i think about the dynamic between people working in factories and people who own a lot of these businesses is that there's such a huge, huge, huge margin between not just the financial, the, the very obvious financial difference, but the cultural differences. Mm -hmm. The fast fashion industry really has always functioned in this way and using this model. For me, the fast fashion industry still functions to this day off of a slave model. Mm -hmm. very much it's so. not literally enslaving people in the same way that they did in America when with enslaved Africans. But but the method of business making is the same. It's basically an entire industry that creates itself on the backs of a group of people and then turns its back on that group of people. Completely. And it's it's basically just exported what started here has now is now doing it in other countries. I completely agree. I mean, it's uh, look, I don't know if you read this. Uh, I'm going to forget his name, but there was a big Republican a Republican senator who recently just said this this week, right? He was quoted saying the like the, the necessary evil of slavery, which is just like, what are you talking mm. about? How is there talk about no accountability um, of, you know, at all of the fact, you know, you talked about cotton. So yeah, cotton, we became because of slavery, the US um, started competing with even though the the square footage of like where we were growing cotton was so much smaller, but we had completely free labor. So we suddenly were competing with India. This is, you know, like 17, like 1700s. We just suddenly shot up in our uh, export and growing of cotton. And then it's still been um, 
that was all consolidated in the hands of a few really wealthy landowners. And it's, um, mm -hmm. yeah, it's, it's, that is the, this very um, exploitative capitalistic model that, yeah, I mean, it, it's having, seeing it take hold in other countries and seeing its ultimate destruction, you know, it, it, again, I don't, I'm not someone who, the group thought of communism, I think, is, is is scary. I mean, it gets into sort of fascist territory, in my opinion, but we're not really talking about politics. But certainly there needs to be more socialism. There needs to be um, a bigger middle class. There needs to be um, a lifting up of people. Um, and and obviously, there, or at least to me, it's obvious, there certainly should be no um, no forced labor or no undervalued labor because... Um, because it's a, it, that's an incredible resource. People's labor is a resource and it should be rewarded and it should be, um, you know, people should have um, the ability to, to learn, you know, skills, anyone, you know, the ability to, to uh, for education should be something that should be accessible to, to everyone. So, um, I mean, I have a, my husband's European and I think there are so many, there are lots of things to emulate in some of some of those countries, which is not to say that this problem doesn't exist. Some of the, some of the, you know, certainly if you look at it social, socially, some of the colonial attitudes and, um, and racism and all of that still exist in, in, in Europe, but, and, and the, some of these fast fashion brands are in Europe, like CNA and Primark and, you know, and they're one of, they're some of the bad players that aren't paying their bills and aren't, and don't pay living wages. So, um, yeah, it's, it's a big, um, it's a big problem and it needs to be, everybody needs to be talking about it. People should be, people should know about it and they shouldn't be, I think we too easily, um, particularly I'll speak for myself being somebody who is, I mean, I'm not, I don't come from a wealthy family, but I come from, you know, having, having resources and, and having, I mean, I started working for myself for pocket pocket money when I was in high school I started babysitting but I had um you know anybody who's who's shopping in these stores should know should be thinking critically about you know they're voting with their dollar and what are they doing mm. you know where's that money going to absolutely so yeah and and to kind of go back to what you were saying before about the republican tom something or other yeah. Yeah. Who said um, the necessary evil of slavery? And I guess my response to that would be necessary to who? How how can that be a necessary evil? It's not necessary at all. It's necessary to a particular group of people. But if it has to be on the backs of a group of people or a nation, then it has to be revisited and it has to be revised. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think I, I just had a talk with some uh friends of mine who work in Ghana, uh, in the secondhand markets over there. Um, you know, and, and I have a friend who grew up a couple a friend who grew up in Tanzania. There's, and that's a whole nother ball of, uh, ball of issues, right? The secondhand market and the post-consumer, uh, what we do with post-consumer goods. So not, not the fast fashion side of things, but the other end of things. And, the same constructs are, are in play, um, oftentimes in, in those markets, but there's, there's really an opportunity for some eco, eco reparations, I think. And for some of these, 
African countries who get this influx of secondhand clothing to to build um, build economies and infrastructure, recycling and otherwise, like around those around those goods, around that fabric, um, and you know since they've been shouldering the burden of this, the volume of, of stuff for so long to, to have it be hopefully a path to, uh, for, to help, help develop their textile economies and, um, the industries, um, you know, particularly as I, we were talking about, um, Western Africa, um, and Ghana specifically, but it, it is, yeah, there's the, um, I mean, some of that has to do just with, also with the the reckoning i think that you know we're we're one of the things that's happened and i think silver linings out of covid and we could also talk about why it's sad that there had to be this huge pause sort of in the world for for a lot of uh white folks in america to suddenly really start considering the black lives matter issue and uh issues rather um, and start to get more active in in the protests and join join in and, and amplify and all that. I mean, there's 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 something kind of sad about that, but there's but there is also a positive about that and some of the traction that's happening um, from that, which hopefully is is again a long term, a longer term uh, sustained reckoning with history um, because. Because that's that's there. That's um, and that's definitely tied into the fashion industry. Because you see, I mean, look, you see these things like the um, the sweater that came out of um, uh, I don't want to misname the brand. I know Prada had the keychain, um, but these or like the oh, the, was it um, the Gucci sweater Gucci, with the yeah. the turtleneck? Yeah. Yes, yeah, the, the Gucci face. turtleneck. It it came above the the mouth and it emulated a, a sambo. Yes, exactly, mm-hmm. totally. And and um, I'm you know one of I'm friendly with uh, Kimberly Jenkins, who's a professor out of uh, she now works at Ryerson, but she was at Parsons and Pratt for years, and she actually went uh, and consulted with Gucci a bit for some uh, racism and inclusion training. For their corporate office but you look at you know the the c-suites executive suites and whole teams of a lot of these not fat and now we're not necessarily talking about the past fashion now we're talking about higher high fashion quote-unquote luxury fashion although often luxury fashion is made in the same factories as other fashion and a lot of the yes. items that are luxury fashion <laughs> a lot of the luxury fashion stuff is is marketing pure marketing and it's not quality yeah. i mean some of it is gorgeous and beautiful and you know, but a lot of it is, I think of, um, ab fab, absolutely fabulous where a lot of these women would wear like their Gautier t-shirt. And that's like, mm. that's like the, the, the quintessential, um, BS quote luxury piece. But you know, all those teams are white. They're all white. And it's like, how, I mean, how are you going to have any kind of inclusion it's not about bringing in somebody, and this is no shade to uh, to Kimberly because she's an incredible. She's started a database now, which I don't know if you follow her, but she has. Um, so Kimberly Jenkins in Ryerson is her college, and then her it's the Fashion and Race database. She'd be an incredible podcast guest, frankly. She's brilliant, but um, yeah, she sounds amazing. I'm gonna have yeah, to. Yeah, I'm happy her to up. make an introduction. She's she's really she's great, 
But she, um, you know, it's not about ha having somebody come out for a week and talk to your team. It's about bringing in, like, let's get a, you know, we got to diversify our marketing team. We need to have merchandise. We need to have, you know, and part of that, the flip side of that is also, let's look at how expensive these design schools are and, you know, and how exclusionary that is. Um, you know, hmm. I mean, Parsons is, is what, 50,000 a year, I think. Um, and Parsons is a oh, great Parsons school. is, um, that's exactly how it is. I remember when I started, when I was taking fashion courses, I remember knowing that things were different because I had classmates who were carrying their supplies and like Louis Vuitton bags and just wearing $900 t-shirts. And, and it was just so new to me. I did not grow up like that at all. I have never owned anything designer before. And so it was just like this entirely different thing. And just in addition to that, when it came down to creating collections, the people who often get picked to produce or who get thrust in the forefront have the money to support creating a line that they're naturally going to like because they could afford to buy premium fabrics. They could afford to hire a pattern maker. They can afford to send their jackets out to have them lined and they can afford to have a professional photographer and they can afford, you know, like they can afford to do the things that make them look more professional. The fashion industry really has a long way to go as far as inclusion. And so, yep. yeah. Yeah, it's a little bit of like, you know, the Oz, don't look at the man behind the curtain. It's like, you know, jazz hands, like, you know, diversion um, <laughs> instead of like really folk, instead of really doing the work because the work needs to be done by the white folks in the fashion industry. So, and that means passing, also passing the mic. I mean, I think it has to do with, you know, the exclusionary um, nature of the fashion industry um, yeah, I mean, it's, it really has to, it really has to change. Um, and it needs to be more because, and you know, this, I'm certainly being a design student, you know, more so than I do, but you have so much that is taken, um, instead of, so instead of taking, you know, what's been happening for, for generations, which is, you know, these designers copy street, street, uh, fashions, and then they, you know, commodify them and price them up and, and spin, do their own little spin on them. Um, you know, bring in the, the young talent and designers that are, that are making the, you know, fashion that you're respecting and emulating and give them the platform to, to make the clothing. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, I mean, I think that it goes back to like the, really having more and more conversations around it. Um, and I am seeing, I mean, I have a lot of friends from, uh, that aren't, that aren't white that I've talked to race about for a long, you know, a long time. And since certainly since college, I mean, I went to, I actually left New York and went to school in Montana for high school. And that was pretty, pretty white high school. We had like one, one family that wasn't, wasn't white, but, um, obviously New York, uh, is different. And, and I went to Brown for undergrad, which Brown is a very, I had a very, I had a, like a UN mix from different, all different countries and backgrounds. And, um, uh, it's, I'm hearing more white friends of mine talk about it. And I think have 
an understanding about it or beginning to ask questions about it. Um, and knowing that it's not just, it's not just knowing about it, it's being actively anti-racist. So it's trying to, to our earlier point of how to, how to, how can I try to help? And this is something that we're working on in new fashion initiative. And it's, you know, thinking of ideas around, um, to start, you know, the change from the inside. So how to, how to really try to, um, because I don't think some of these, you know, some of these larger companies, I mean, it'll be really interesting to see what's going to shake out from COVID, right? Because a lot of brands that we would think of as infallible and, and constant, um, are going, are probably going to fold, you know, they don't have the cash, yeah. you mm-hmm. know? So there's, um, that is an opportunity for, you know, for there to be, um, a lot of new talent and some new, um, new players. There's been quite a few fast fashion brands that have gone bankrupt. And I think that it's because the model no longer fits. And so I do see an opportunity for more artisanal brands to create space in the fashion industry. And I think mills are also starting to change, requiring people to make orders for thousands of garments. They're they're now working and allowing people to work in much smaller batches as well. And so I think it's something that's catching on. Because it really is unsustainable for the environment, but it's also unsustainable financially. The financial system that it functions on really cannot live. I mean, it has a very short lifespan and we've seen that over and over again. And I think that's why the system has continued to recreate itself because it it has to stop at some point. It, It can't keep going. They basically run themselves into the ground. So totally. No, I agree. Yeah, I mean, they're big and and it's important just to say like one of the underlying themes, I think, of what we're saying is just how interconnected, you know, all of it is. And we're going to see, I think the economic fallout from COVID will just continue. So we're going to see a lot more people um, have a lot less expendable income. And one of the things that we're looking at with a longer term uh, blog series is going to be. So how does consumption change? Does COVID really change consumption in the in the West, in the in the U.S. in particular? Um, I'm hopeful. I really hope. And I, I know for me, you know, I mean, we we're I'm pretty low impact. I went, you know, I went through a year of no shopping. So I buy um, all secondhand except for you know underwear and socks, and I um, don't buy a lot of clothing. I have a lot of my own clothes. Um, I did rent the runway through my pregnancy. So I didn't buy maternity clothing. Um, but you know, I think, uh, I don't know. I just, I, I really hope that people, because that's another key part of all of this is that the, the quote unquote developed countries, although I think the U S calling itself, that is, um, a misnomer, right? I don't think if I don't if you don't give people education and healthcare, I don't think you can call yourself a developed country. But you know, we consume huge percentages of the you know of the world's resources and energy uh, and carbon. You know, uh, um, sort of ration like so. It's yeah. We, we there's a lot. I really, I think that I think that 
your generation and younger are really pushing for, I mean, I see like Fridays for Future, you know, um, the groups like that. I see a lot of, and I work with uh, an activist who's a climate activist who's just graduated high school. She's 18. She's running our podcast. Um, she just interviewed, uh, you know, Extinction Rebellion and, and Tom Steyer, who is this Democratic, um, this Democrat who ran for for president, um, unsuccessfully, but in the last election, um, she's just a really proactive, engaged, vocal, confident young woman. And she is, um, her interest is, so she's, well, she's first generation, but she's Lebanese and her interest is in really, um, translating and, uh, sharing climate data with her generation in what we call the Middle East. So in, you know, Turkey, Lebanon, Jordan, all these, you know, different countries. Um, and there are so many other examples that are of, of young people who are like her, who I find completely inspiring. I mean, you, you've got a podcast, you're, you know, um, doing uh, the work that you're doing with mills and, and textiles down south. Um, that, that is incredible work. It's incredibly important. That's, you know, shoring up some, uh, some manufacturing here is, you know, good for our local economies in the U S as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And do you have any new projects that you'd like to share with our listeners? I, uh, well, we're building on the workshop program. So that's going to be, um, we're going to be announcing that later this year. Um, and we're going to be including, um, students in that, which I'm excited about. So having professors learn from students and vice versa. Um, and we have the podcast that I mentioned. So that's Sophia Kiani. I should name her. I don't know why I didn't say her name earlier. Who's our host. And that's going to be, um, uh, continuing and, and, and growing. Um, and that's climate focused. And then we have, although, sorry, it might be bad, bad form to mention a podcast on a podcast. <laughs> sorry. Um, no, please, uh, please. Um, you should let everyone know where they can listen and support. Yeah. It's, um, it's linked on our, on our Instagram. And then we have a series that we just started. I mentioned, um, secondhand clothing and, uh, that is about the, this huge, large system and how to, how we're going to try to institute some true circularity and, and find the different opportunities. It's, it's one thing I will say, and I'm an optimist. So I look at it this way when systems are so broken, there's nothing but opportunity. There's, there's just nothing but a better solution. Mm. So, um, that's how I want to focus on it. So we're, that's what we're, you know, we're, we're, we work with a couple of um, experts in that field and we're going to be just educating people more on that and finding opportunity to help these um, players continue their work. So those, I would say that's, that's what I'll shout out for now, but stay tuned. Definitely follow us on Instagram. So <laughs> we'll definitely make sure that we have links so that people can follow your work and, and see how you progress. It's been amazing talking to you. I've really enjoyed this conversation and all of the insights that you've shared. Um, really, really excited about the work that you're doing. And 
before you go, <laughs> we have one question that we ask everyone that joins the podcast. And that is, do you have any advice or words of wisdom to share with weavers and textile enthusiasts? Yeah, I mean, I, so I am someone who has um, so much respect for, for weavers. I think, um, you know, it's not a skill that I have, but I think that, um, I do think that there is, uh, as you said, I think there's an acknowledgement, that kind of craft, um, I don't think that's going anywhere in terms of people's respect for that. So I, I just hope that there is a growing um, appreciation for that um, in, uh, by consumers of fashion and makers of fashion. Um, and then textiles, I think, you know, um, I'm excited by some of the, um, the innovations in, in recycling that have recently happened. Um, mm. I will shout out a friend of mine who is based in Oregon, who has a um, recycling um, fabrics company called Awesome Tech. So that's O-S-O-M-T-E-X. And she just partnered with, um, uh, actually with Nike, to make a shoe, the Space Hippie, which is pretty cool. Um, so I think there's some really interesting... That sounds so amazing. Yeah, it's very neat. It's cool. And then, you know, there's there's Evernew, which is doing some neat, neat stuff with cotton based out of Seattle. So I think there's, you know... Uh, and I also, one of our advisors, um, there's a lot happening with vegan textiles. So with bio um, biomimicry and also with biomaterials. Um, and so the brand is called Brave Gentleman. Um, one of our advisors, Joshua Catcher, does, does work and research there. Um, you know, Algae Knit is another great, great one that came out of FIT, Algae Fabric. So I think for, you know, for textile enthusiasts, I think that's, that's kind of the new frontier is some of these biomaterials um, that are going to hopefully be replacing, um, replacing things like wool and leather that have such a, such a big environmental footprint. But I think, you know, it's, it, they're, the, the, the stuff that our clothing is made out of is where there's a huge opportunity for innovation and betterment for lack of a better word. Um, certainly can, we can, we can do a lot better than nylon. That's for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining the podcast and for sharing your amazing insights. Thank you. It's great. Great to chat with you. Wonderful to, uh, to get into it. And um, yeah, I wish you all the best with, with everything. And I'm excited to tell people about, about your podcast. That's a wrap. If you're interested in supporting the new fashion initiative, you can find links in the show notes at www.justyarn.com slash episode dash 124. On next week's episode, I'm really excited to speak with Jesse Mordine Young. Jesse is a textile curator, teacher of traditional textile techniques, and a maker living in New York City. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode. Please stay tuned for next week's episode. Until next time, happy weaving.